Welcome to the Queering Museums podcast, a show about LGBTQ museum workers who bring queer stories to life in their institutions. This is episode two of the first season of the podcast, which we've produced to celebrate LGBT History Month in the UK. You can catch episode one on SoundCloud or on iTunes, and if you hit subscribe, you'll get the upcoming episodes when we release them over the next few Mondays. My name is Andrea Jones, and I'm an independent museum consultant. My uh, business is called Peak Experience Lab, and I help museums design and create their own interactive and meaningful and memorable learning experiences. I think my identity, it can't help but to come into play with my work. I was 36 before I realized that I was gay and I um, left a straight marriage for a new life and I think that it definitely profoundly affected my perspective. I had a perspective shift and went from being one person to becoming another person and it was really valuable. Um, for me because I really understood for the first time what it felt like to be you know maybe like the only person in the room like me or for everyone to assume that I was straight and ask me how my husband was or you know the all all the things that that happen to you um, when you're not of the dominant you know kind of person and so in my work in the museum world uh, revolves around, um, well, my specialty is in designing learning simulations that are to a great extent uh, role play simulations. So people take on the role of other people, they they walk in their shoes, they make decisions, they, um, as much as they can, try to get a little slice of life to see what it would be like to be somebody else um, back in history, usually. And so, you know, I think (laughs) me becoming another person uh, at a midpoint in my life has definitely affected the work that I do because I'm constantly striving to give people the skills to empathize with other people um, who are not like them. So, you know, when I assign people roles. I want them to be as diverse as possible. There was one example in particular um, that I can think of. Um, So I was designing a simulation that had to do with the Civil War. So you go through a Civil War exhibit um, and you are assigned the role of a private soldier, either on the Union or Confederate side, and then you make decisions on that person's behalf um, throughout the war so to speak, and one of the people that I, the, one of the profile sheets I designed was of um, a person named Albert Cashier, who um, was assigned woman at birth, so he was a, he was a biologically a woman, and entered the war as a man, and used the war to transform his life, um, to be the gender that he felt more comfortable being and he lived the rest of his life as a man 
all the way up and almost until his death um, when he was discovered to be a biological woman and then put in an insane asylum. So it was an unfortunate ending. Now, none of the stuff that I read had, had mentioned anything about transgender or um, it was more like, you know, the narrative was about this this woman wanted to be disguised. Um, look how clever she was to be disguised as a man. And, uh, you know, being a person who had been around uh, other transgender people, I, I just picked up on the signals immediately. And, um, you know, I just wanted to bring this story um, a little bit of uh, light. You know, I wanted to... Um, wanted it to be showcased and so I put uh, Albert Cashier's profile in the game and so you know kids fifth graders 11th graders 12th graders um, every day at the Atlanta History Center they play the role of Albert Cashier among other soldiers and at the end of the game the students find out who um, what really happened to the soldier that they had portrayed in the game and um, there's a description on the back of their profile sheet. And, you know, I made this game back in um, 2011. And I don't really think I had the confidence yet to to really come out and say, this is a transgender man. And um, he probably wanted to be, he probably used the the war as a way of transforming himself instead of, using this language of disguising and being able to vote and, you know, using um, the, the transition as kind of a way to, to get privilege in society instead of um, talking about gender identity, because I think it could be really valuable. I still do think that there is a lot of value in having that story be visible, because I think, you know, my hope is that that students um, who are kind of between genders or if they, you know, maybe they're like me when I was a kid, I felt like a, um, a tomboy and never really wanted to, you know, do all the, you know, play with dolls and be girly and all that kind of stuff um, that they see themselves in this character um, and are able to get some um, inspiration from it. Uh, there are definitely people, characters, and historical figures that inspire me. Um, of course, we're all trying to find ourselves in those people and those characters, not only on uh, television and books, but also um, if you're in the history profession like I am, you look for them in history. Um, Netflix has a whole category designed for me just called Dramas with a Strong Female Lead, <laughs> if that tells you anything. Um so, but I'm going to give, as far as the historical characters, I am going to go ahead and, and give a shout out to Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, and Susan B. Anthony. And I say Elizabeth Cady Stanton first because she is the person that I most identify with. Um, of course, in the 19th century, there weren't a lot of, there, there's not a lot of evidence about who was gay and who was not gay. Uh, a lot of women had these very close relationships. But these two ladies were like the founding mothers of feminism. So I feel like that's a precursor to 
being uh, out and gay um, and a woman. So, and especially uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I, I identify with because I really love a woman who has a little bit of swagger. I mean, who doesn't, right? So um, not only did she fight um, for the women's right to vote, that was just one of the things on her mind. She was also in favor of birth control for women. Women. She was in favor of women having sex for pleasure. She thought that women should be able to own property, get divorced. Um, she even rewrote the Bible to have a female God. So a lot of her opinions got her in trouble and almost jeopardized her, her credibility, which is probably why she was not is not on our dollar coins and Susan B. Anthony is. But I also love the story of their friendship, which, you know, was not gay as far as we know. Um, Susan B. Anthony definitely had there I mean there is some evidence that she may have been gay and she'd never married, etc. Um Elizabeth Cady Stanton had kind of a rocky marriage and spent a lot of time away from her husband you know, I felt like, I feel like there could be some possibilities there. Um, and I just like, lo- I just love the whole, their whole relationship because Susan B. Anthony was this, uh, very kind of rigid, serious person who was just relentless with her work ethic, um, and her single-minded desire to get the vote. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton is over there. I mean, she really enjoys the pleasures of life. And um, it is her mouth is always getting her into trouble. She's not as strategic, but she's the visionary. She's the muse. Um, and the two of them worked really well together, except they were kind of, you know, disagreeing with tactics now and then and kind of bickering back and forth. But... I just love the story in general. I love, uh, you know, the two women. And they're, in my mind, they're gay. So, you know, <laughs> I'm making up the story. I know that's not very, um, that's not that's not good historical practice. But um, sometimes when you don't, you know, you don't have these stories, you uh, you kind of think of them on your own. I have been lucky enough to not run into a tremendous amount of discrimination in the workplace. I feel like the museum world is a pretty progressive place, generally. And also because I came out at a later age, um, I was, and it was already 2006, I guess it was, or 2007. So, you know, the world had come around a bit and so I didn't have a lot of those really harrowing discrimination stories that some people have but um, there are just some them some times when people are just a little careless about what they say and um, I, you know I think it's a lot better than it used to be but I, I will tell you one specific example I was um, putting together a panel discussion so I was getting speakers together, and um, I, w- I got one particular speaker who was an expert at, um, he, was a, he was a culinary expert 
on vegan soul food. And um, this guy had done a lot in his field to make food healthier and so forth. So I, um, I wanted him to be on this panel. And so I was interviewing him the next day. Um, and I was getting ready for the interview by doing a bunch of research. And on the internet, I found this video of him talking to an audience about chicken and the fact that he thought that the hormones that they're putting in chicken is making people gay. <laughs> and um, that, you know, he's like, did you ever notice that there, there are a lot more gay people now than there, there were in the past? And it also correlates with the fact that they're putting hormones in chicken now and it's like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> um, he, he talked about hairdressers and how hairdressers eat a lot of chicken. And it just it just got getting worse and worse. And so I just decided I can't have this guy on my panel. I think LGBTQ history is tremendously important because we all need to see ourselves in history. I mean... If you look at, I mean, just ask any queer lady on the street how many bad lesbian movies she's seen. And I bet the number is off the charts because there's not that many. So we just watch any like one or two star movies there are just trying to see ourselves on the screen, um, you know, to normalize our lifestyle and our relationships and our um, all the things that, you know, make us culturally different. And um, I think it's true for any marginalized community, but I can only speak for myself in that when I find out that uh, a lady that I had studied in history is gay, I get really excited. Um, I just recently found out that Jane Addams was gay. I guess I should have known that, but it's pretty awesome um, to realize things like that. It's, it's kind of, it's validating and it's, um, I think it, it helps young, uh, young kids have, you know, who are questioning their sexuality already to have some pride and, and self-esteem and knowing that a lot of people like them did great things. My name is Dan Delamotte and I am a freelance storyteller and facilitator who works in the museum sector. I think it's inevitable for an individual's queer identity to influence their work, especially when the work such as mine includes elements of performance. As a queer individual, I am always rooting for the underdog and searching for an alternative to pre-existing narratives regarding the family or gender roles. To be queer, I believe, is to free ourselves from these shackles and labels imposed upon us at birth. And so that trickles into my stories as well, with fiercely strong and plucky and resourceful central protagonists, because, I think, to be queer is to be resourceful. A real living LGBTQ person that inspires me is a campaigner and activist that people may not have heard of called Dan Glass. 
Dan runs something called Queer Tours of London, a mince through time. And with Dan, I am working on campaigning to get a permanent queer museum in London, a space in our capital where queer identity is explored and examined, but also celebrated and embraced. It is definitely something that is currently missing, especially when you consider London's global city status alongside cities with rich cultural queer heritage such as New York and Berlin. As an LGBTQ person myself, I am grateful for the pioneering, radical, brave and often dangerous work of the Gay Liberation Front, who, unlike other 1960s and 1970s organisations like the Homosexual Law Reform Society, were vocal in their anti-assimilationist queer liberation demands, paving the way for some of the freedoms that we take for granted today. I think that the GLF would tell us to not get complacent, however, and the work of the Gay Liberation Front ought and should continue. But we should all be thankful for the way that they have paid for us so far. I think I would be doing myself, and indeed the past, present and future of gay liberation a disservice if I put my work before my queer identity. We should be unapologetic about our identity, and the museum and heritage sector should embrace this where it is found amongst its staff. LGBTQ history is immensely important, first and foremost, sadly, because the fight still goes on. LGBTQ people in the UK have huge freedoms that we didn't have 50 years ago, say, when homosexuality was partially decriminalised. But LGBTQ people still risk ver uh, verbal or physical abuse or violence if they even hold hands in the street, let alone show any other sign of affection. And the situation is, obviously, far worse in other parts of the world. So I think we need to learn from the campaigns and struggles and our history that goes before us, be that Stonewall in the US or the Gay Liberation Front here in the UK. We need to learn how these groups worked and how they operated and how we can continue in the same vein as the pioneers that went before us. Thanks for listening to episode two. You can catch episode three next Monday. The podcast was brought to you by Sasha Coward, Russell Dornan and me, Sean O'Boyle, with thanks to Morris Kelleher for helping with the production. You can find Queering Museums on Twitter at Queering Museums. <laughs>